Well, first of all, um, you know, this is an amazing grouping to have. I just wanted to alert people. There's, there's, we have a number of doctors on here who were actually unable to communicate on this platform until very recently. Um, and I think, and Dr. Finn, you were, you were just brought back okay, can you know, you hear just me days ago. Is that right? Oh. Can you hear me now? Hello? Hello? Yes, absolutely. We hear you. Hey, David. Okay. All right. Okay. I'm on, I'm on cat. Okay. Good. Okay. All right. Can, okay. You can hear me now, right? We got you. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Absolutely. Okay. So there's a, there's a mute button. So in, when you're basically, when you're not talking, you can just use that. And then when okay. you are, well, the rest of us will mute. All right. Okay. We got, we managed to make this work. Okay. All right. Hi, Dr. Wiseman. Hey, David, you need to follow us. Who, who, who said hi, Dr. Wiseman? Oh, the, the girl that you came up to in Washington, D.C. and said, well, who are you? and Why are you here? This is Texas Lindsay. <laughs> okay. Good to, uh, good to hear your voice again. I was at the um, hearing sitting right. behind you. Uh, okay, right. I remember that. And I saw that you'd sent me a message. I have no idea how to reply to it. So that's okay. <laughs> okay That's i'm glad perfect. you're here so, <laughs> so shall we so shall we sort of just you, you I, know, I'm not i, I got to tell you a story you just said hi i'm the girl that you came up to like, i'm thinking like uh wait a minute um i gotta think about that for a minute i think there might have been a few of those <laughs> uh, but, but i'll tell you another story there was one lady that there was one lady at that hearing I walked in and she said, hi, I met you this time at the, at the earlier meeting right over there. And she pointed to the spot where I was sitting nine months ago. So I thought, oh, boy, a woman is coming up to me in a meeting. She said, I met you at this exact spot nine months ago. And it was fortunate because Werner Mendelhall was just walking in as an attorney. I said, I got to have my lawyer present. If a, law if a woman's going to say that to me, I met you at this spot <laughs> nine months ago. I better have a lawyer present. So, so um, anyway, that's my little story. Come on, Jan. Kick in. It hasn't, it hasn't <laughs> been nine months yet. Well, we do have a full house already. We have um, almost a thousand people listening to us right now. So I'm excited that all are all here. I brought um, Dr. Brian Tyson up and, and Dr. Sabine as well, who's been frequenting the spaces a lot lately and speaking out. So I'm glad we could all be here. And um, Jan, do you want to kick it off? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't, I don't feel like I need to actually talk very much. That's, that's, it's not my thing to, to do a lot of talking on these things. But it's just, it's, it's remarkable to have, you know, basically, the founders of the global COVID summit here in the room. And um, the global COVID summit was one of the earliest groups to be, you know, basically talking and with a voice at an organizational level. Um, basically, there, of course, it was not the only one, <laughs> but um, it, it played, a, I think, a very significant role in helping shift the narrative. So I'm very excited to host, you know, Dr. Urso, Dr. Cole, um, Dr. Tyson, Dr. Lindley, um, Dr. Finn, and Dr. Wiseman uh, in the room. This is this is remarkable. And so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna uh, talk very much. I want to kind of get into very quickly reactions uh, with respect to what you saw in these Twitter files. This, I think this is the starting point for us. And I think maybe we, I'll, I'm looking at the order that I see here. Um, maybe we can go kind of in 
uh, reverse order, um, maybe starting with uh, Dr. Wiseman, uh, since you were since you were the, uh, the last to speak here. Um, what what is your reaction to the Twitter files? I I haven't I haven't had a moment to look at them. You're talking about the the revelations of uh, you know the government interference. Uh, I I haven't I've been working on other stuff in COVID. I have I have no reaction. I just I just don't have time. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, no, that's no problem. Well, let's you know we actually but yeah. we do want to go back to you and 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 talk to you. But let's let's get some other reaction. Maybe we'll start with Dr. Yeah. Finn because Dr. Finn just recently got reinstated onto Twitter after quite a significant sojourn. Yeah, the, I had eight accounts, and after my eighth ban, I just gave up. I was like, I'm done. <laughs> but as far as the Twitter files go, um, not a single thing has surprised me yet. Um, it seemed to be that way from the beginning. Uh, I did get the knock, if you know what that is. And I, they did proceed to read me tweets from... My banned account, which I got reinstated yesterday, but this was from 2020, 2021, that he, he was reading my tweets. Now, this is a federal agency reading my banned, suspended tweets. And I said, <laughs> I knew they were involved. I mean, I mean, how else would he get word for word? I mean, there was no. Dr. Finn, can I just jump in? What is the knock? Can you explain that? Sure. Um, when a federal agency knocks at your door and scares your kids. <laughs> That's what the knock is. And so so these agents came to your home and were reading you these messages. Yes, that's correct. I mean, that's that's a pretty astounding in itself, don't you think? Um, very much so. Um, I, it was evident they were trying to intimidate me, which is hard to do, to be honest. So I turned it back on them, and I haven't heard from them since. So none of this, none of this surprised you. No, none of it. Lynn, you know you've really outspoken, uh, Richard, um, and and most of the time you basically spoke science. In fact, almost always you're speaking science unless somebody started really coming after you. When you when you were thrown off of, of Twitter seven or eight times, um, several times, of course, uh, using someone you know's phone numbers, um, <laughs> what were the reasons why you were thrown off? Because because you said bad things, or because you spoke truth in science? Um, I was never disrespectful to anyone. I never said bad things. Um, my first Twitmo experience was a week span for basically saying that the spike protein itself is pathogenic. It doesn't need the RNA or the rest of the virus for it to cause disease. And that was a big no-no because no one in 2020 was declaring the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2 as being the cause of destruction in the body. They were just saying, oh, no, it's just a means for attachment. And... Once, you know, I had a war room at my house and broke down the entire genome and looked for every binding site that could possibly occur and every mechanism that could occur and what that would entail. And that's when I realized this cannot happen in nature. Impossible for this spike protein to be derived 
in nature to attack this many systems in the human body. Impossible. So let me let me ask you a question, Lynn, because I've been following you for so long. So you started letting people know, like Peter Daszak. Who's Peter Daszak, and why did he block you so early in this fight? Oh well, you know he was the firewall between the Wuhan Institute of Virology and our own NIH. So he was the firewall, and he would funnel grant money to Wuhan and Eco Health Alliance, which is always you always need to watch what they're doing. And I've always watched what they were doing, where they were in the world, what viruses they were looking at, what Ebola, Marburg, Nipah. Always keep an eye on what they're doing and follow the money because it's going through them. And when I basically proposed to Peter Daszak that this virus, number one, was synthesized in the laboratory, and number two, was already here by Thanksgiving of 2019, he immediately blocked me. So then let me ask you a question. What what credentials do you have to be able to do all that stuff? I mean, do you actually know about viruses? Well, I don't know anything about viruses. I studied <laughs> viruses. No. I studied microbiology in undergrad. I went to medical school and I did virological research as well. And I developed therapeutics for such things presently. Um some of the simple questions I asked both Barrick, the Barrick lab, I asked simple questions. I was blocked immediately. Um, I asked Trevor Bedford some simple questions, blocked Christian Anderson. And when it later came up that all of their emails popped up in Fauci's um, discourse on how to shut Martin Kulldorff and, and Jay Bhattacharya up, um, it became evident that I was in a hotbed of people that are not very friendly to me. <laughs> So what, what about, you know, one of the things I remember you talking about early on was the RATG-13. The, the actually, they threw that out there into the PubMed circulation and said that this is the virus discovered by um, Shang Li in, in, in China. Um, so you went right after that and said it was impossible. And that's one it, of the reasons you got banned. Yeah, it was, it was not only impossible, but... They, they made some mistakes in creating RATG-13, and those mistakes made it obvious they were covering their tracks. Um, RATG-13 cannot live in a bat's body temperature. It cannot live in a bat's body temperature. They did not get it from a bat. So that right there told me something funny was up. And as um, a group of friends of mine a molecular biologist and, and a few others that later became drastic as we went through all of the um, genomic potentials and how it possibly could happen. It, we were, it, it became evident that the way uh, it was constructed was almost as a decoy. So basically you were one of the few people that could actually peel through that data. You got too close to the hornet's nest and they basically, that's when you started getting banned. Is that a fair statement? That's very fair. And I, okay. I, I never would imagine that could happen. I mean, in America, especially science. I mean, scientific di discourse is how we solve problems. Um, they've decided to push this narrative of consensus, but that's not scientific. Consensus is not scientific. I don't know where that came from. But even my colleagues will say, well, what's the consensus? What are we? We can't think for ourselves. 
So what's you know? So basically, what you're saying is the middle ground is not is not relevant when it comes to science. The Earth's no. either round or it's flat. I mean, it's not it's not a it's not a consensus. It's not a um, it's not something up for um, and the analysis is in the data itself, and that's how you determine what is the consensus. Is the data tells you what it is. It so, tells so, you what it is, and when people um, throw in their personal beliefs and opinions then it doesn't become consensus anymore. It just becomes an opinion. And, uh, you know, if you can't question something and get an answer and you just get blocked, then you start saying, wait, what's going on? And then all of a sudden when you're spending seven days in Twitmo because you, you mentioned something about a cycle threshold of 45 not being, you know, the way you would use PCR to determine a case, as they like to say, uh, then you start saying, wait, wait, I'm literally, I can't go on this platform because I questioned a cycle threshold of 45 for RT-PCR. Uh, that, that makes no sense. Did you go yeah. after Drosten's work on the PCR test also? I did. I most certainly did. Um, not only his work, uh, the, the, the sequence he used, the fact that he didn't use it from an isolate, it, it's in his paper. He, it's in the supplementary information that he did not use it from an isolate. So he was basically given a genome to make a primer. And it's like, <laughs> given to you, uh, where is science now? So I'm going to ask you a question. Hey, Richard, sorry, Ryan. That's Please. bringing up such a great point is where is science now? Because, yeah, and, and you've heard me quote on stage, look, the difference between communism and freedom is the ability. You know, to, to censor so many brilliant people um, is just, I mean, it's antithetical to science. I mean, consensus never happens until all the questions have been asked, until people have had arguments till people have had discussions till all the data is you know brought forward and that's what you know lynn was asking basic questions and that's what we all should have been able to do all the way along instead of having a government coerce you know private agencies or private social media companies in order to push you know their other narratives and agendas and injections and and that's what's really crazy about this is you have have amazingly experienced uh, physicians here amazingly experienced colleagues and, and look, we, we spend Tuesday nights on the phone in our planning meetings and group meetings. We're up till midnight, 1 a.m. And we always have different points of view on certain things, but that's how we learn from each other. So to silence people, that's what's really been shocking about this whole experience. And Over Ryan, I'll, to your point, uh, this wasn't the first time that something like this has happened where um, consensus was determined, predetermined. I mean, if people think about the 80s, uh, when the sec the HHS secretary during the Reagan administration announced to the world at a press conference that HIV was the probable cause of AIDS, every scientist went, wait, what? Where's the paper? Where's the data? Where's the, the experimentation? Where is it? There was none. It was not allowed to be debated among scientists at that time. It was literally announced at a press conference by Fauci and Gallo. So it's not the first time where they took the narrative 
they controlled the narrative and they determined it consensus. And anyone who had a question of that consensus were banned or barred or their grants pulled. And it, this isn't the first time. Well, that's why the little man needs to go away. The sad little man that's been in charge of uh, basically dictatorially silencing science, pretending like he is the science for so many decades. I mean, this is really what it's revealed. And, you know, from the 80s until now to have science, not only in America, but in so much of the world, controlled by the the dictatorial funding um, dictates and mandates of this individual's mind. Uh, you know, hopefully we're going to enter a newer era, era of science as he uh, retires, hopefully, because, you know, yeah, what happened in the 80s recapitulated itself here. And hopefully enough people are now awake that we can at least try to stop this from ever happening again. Over. Yeah, yeah. I'd, say, I'd say that I'd agree, but I know Fauci is helping train his predecessor. And I know that he's going to make sure that all the bones that are buried will be revealed to whomever takes his place. And who knows, they may act on the same behalf, if not, if not worse. Look at Cuomo. He was out. What did we get? Worse. You know, this isn't the first time where we're like, thank God, he's finally out the door. What did he create while he was there? A whole culture of corruption in science, a whole culture of, of partnership with pharma that is an unholy coupling, in my opinion. And every single agency and every single uh, medical board and association is now trained for decades 40 years to think that this is normal and it is not. Yeah, that's, that's a good point, Lynn. I, I, I also think that, you know, early on in this pandemic, it was easy for us to feel that collaborative, collaborative coordinated attack on us pretty early on. Twitter became the only platform where we actually had, you know, some, some leeway. And, um, when we went to Washington, DC, um, we did the, so for Jan, um, most of us were, we, Form the America's Frontline Doctors, Joe Latipo, myself, and some of the others here on this on this call uh, back in June 2020, um, and basically um, went viral, and then basically got after right after that immediately websites were taken down, um, and pretty much everything that we put out was taken down, and that's when the real censorship really, really, really came down hard on people speaking out, and that was back in the early part of 2020 and mid 2020, we still had some leeway to be able to speak, but it immediately, it sort of um, escalated from there. And that's why you see the Twitter files where they then went after the great Barrington people um, and et cetera, et cetera. Anybody who had uh, any kind of a platform was, was taken down. Um, forget the guys in California. They came with us. Um, he put out their two ER guys. They put out a nice video. They got taken down. Ioannidis, uh, somebody must've spoke to him behind the scenes. Ioannidis, one of the top 10, most um, cited physician scientists in the world. Uh, he's, he pretty much has gone silent um, since getting uh, a, a, some word out on the actual infection fatality rates early on. So people were silenced in multiple ways, including what you see in the Twitter files, but also behind the scenes where people are basically warned, if you speak out, you know, you're not going to be funded. You're not going to be, your, your stuff's not going to be accepted in the journals. When we went to um, Washington, D.C., um, we talked about hydroxychloroquine and other early treatment things um, and the administration, Pence, 
Fleming and the White House said, hey, we can't, we don't want to go there. It's too hot a topic. We don't want to go there. So they refused, in a sense, to discuss any um, anything to talk about early treatment. And, and that became their MO. Like, all we can talk about is vaccines. Um, so, of course, we ended up starting talking out against vaccines. And then Pierre Corey, of course, who's one of the founders of, of, of Global COVID Summit also, um, got viral with the ivermectin. And, and at that point, they'd start to do with the uh, ivermectin what had happened with hydroxychloroquine. But I think in general, um, the entire experience has been um, very, very coordinated. And, and, and the, the Twitter files show all that. I, I, I want to kind of just flip gears real quick. Um, um, if, you know, we've got Ryan Cole on here, Lynn, and, and, and many others. We've got Brian Tyson, Kat, uh, David Weissman. You know, one of the things that's happened, I don't know if people have seen this. I'll just flip gears because uh, this is our, our strength is in our science. Um, so there's been uh, an interesting thing we've been looking for where Ryan's talked about it, where he said, hey, I think these vaccines are eventually going to create the same thing that you might see if you get bee venom. You get little amounts of bee venom and eventually you're going to develop some tolerance. And what we've seen lately is that there's been some good science coming out on IgG4 and how that's another impactor on why these vaccines are such a failure. Despite the fact that they uh, they have significant limitations because they distribute to brain, bone marrow, adrenals, ovaries, they go everywhere. They don't stay in the arm. 80% leaves. Despite the fact that the massive production, because the RNAs just can't break down the um, the, um, the 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 the, the uh, pseudouridine component, despite all that, we're seeing, of course, all the components they put in CD one forty seven, TMPRSS two, all the different the ACE two receptor, the NRP one, all the things that they basically turn this Volkswagen into a um, into a Sherman tank. One of the things we're starting to see is some immune compromise. Um, Ryan, I know you and I were talking about this. You want to kind of talk about what what does this mean? This immune compromise that's occurring because of the IgG four levels, and you want to take that? Yeah, real quick. So yeah, it was in the journal Science Immunology by Pascal Ergang with the primary author. And and this, I mean, this is why the silencing uh, Dr. of Dr. Cole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you could just explain instead of layman's terms, uh, what what exactly is happening? Oh, I plan on that. Yeah, yeah, you bet, Jan. That's a that's a great point. I'll, I'll so 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 basically, I'm I'm not going to geek out too scientifically here. The important thing is, I, I'm going to tie it into the broader theme. When you silence doctors, people get hurt, and and having immunologists, virologists, uh, treating clinicians silenced when we know what is and what isn't good for the body, we have no agenda in any of this. You know, those of us who are here, part of the Global COVID Summit, our end goal is truth. Well, those of us who study immunology, virology, pathology, et cetera, when we see things that are being pushed forward that we know had potential harms um, in retrospect, I'm not, I'm not here to judge anyone. If you got one shot, don't get two. If you got two, don't get three. If you got three, don't get four. Just stop. But what Richard's bringing up is the fact that I, I've been talking about this for over a year. When you continuously expose the body to something like, like Richard said, like, you know, a little bit of bee venom, a little bit of bee venom, and I'm, I'm a beekeeper on my organic farm, I get stung a couple times a year, and eventually you just build up a tolerance to the to where the body doesn't hyper react. 
Same thing. If you had a kiddo and he or she has, you know, chronic allergies and you go get allergy shots, be it for, you know, cat dander or dog dander or peanuts or whatever, a little bit of exposure to the protein, a little bit of exposure to the protein, a little bit of exposure. Eventually your body says, you know what, I'm just going to calmly not, not react to that anymore. So, you know, we've heard all this antibodies, IgG, oh, look, you're getting an immune response. And I've been saying all along, antibodies, schmantibodies, having the wrong kind of antibodies becomes your enemy. And so, you know, when we make an immune response, sure, you want to form some antibodies that tells you have immune memory. More important for immunity, always has been, always will be, is your T-cell response. But again, I'm getting a little nerdy. What Richard's bringing up is articles are finally coming out confirming what we knew immunologically all along is now the immune system is being blinded in a lot of people that have gotten too many shots and you're switching to a type of antibody that is it's in the category of immune tolerance. It helps you tolerate things instead of react to things. This this is okay if you're trying to fight off an allergy. This is really bad news if you're exposed to a virus in the future that's similar to this virus or in this family of viruses, and you want your body to mount a response, your body's going to say, I've seen that too many times. I'm just going to stay calm and not react. Now you're literally, you know, a boat without a keel stuck in the water because you're a sitting duck for, you know, that virus in the future. We knew this all along. This was why, you know, being silenced on social media, being attacked and demeaned and defamed by the media literally has hurt people's lives. And immunologically, we're all very concerned. You know, we're, we're all creative doctors trying to figure out mechanisms and things for the future to help people. But at the same time, this, this is why you don't silence uh, intelligent people that are creative thinkers. Over. Yeah, can I, um... let's, uh, let's just jump in. We're going to do intersperse this with some audience questions. There's been some fantastic audience questions added to the thread. And maybe we can field this with one of the doctors that hasn't spoken quite yet. Um, so I will uh, jump in. And also, at the, at the same moment, if you, if you, when you jump in, if you want to talk about your reaction to the censorship files, uh, that would be great. So here's the question. Are there any stats on adverse reactions versus blood type? I heard that the formation of blood clots is le less likely for O-neg or O-pause due to smoother surface of red blood cells. Anyone want to feel that? Ryan. Yeah, it's true to a degree because your, your blood types on the surface of your red blood cells, whether you're A, whether you're B, whether you're O, it's a glycoprotein. It's a sugar protein. And sugar <clears throat> and proteins interact in the blood. And, you know, part of the bad outcomes in COVID itself was, you know, what, how high is your blood sugar? You know, are you type two diabetic, type one diabetic? That was the one factor that played, you know, right up there with obesity, a critical factor. So, you know, it was interesting early on, there were some studies that suggested that those with O blood type actually did better when they got COVID. Um, and, you know, some other data seemed to negate or neutralize that. So it depends on the study you look at. But there is some veracity to the fact that each blood type does have different propensity to clotting and different propensity to um, be a little more hypercoagulable. There's a lot of other factors that go into play. But that's that's a valid scientific point. Absolutely. Over. Yeah, but, but it's not it's not a clear cut thing that someone who's got a 
oh, oh, this is David Wiseman. Oh, oh, blood type is is twice as likely to get a certain type of uh, you know adverse events. I mean, the the papers that I've seen haven't been super convincing, although they've been usually small, you know, 200, 300 series. I think there was one from Saudi Arabia very recently. Um, so, so I'm, 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 I'm not so excited about that. I mean, I remain open to the possibility, but, um, y- you know, I think there's other factors. Um, I saw a paper today um, of, a, of a variant of a gene that handles, that's involved in the handling of iron, <clears throat> um, uh, that's involved with a disease called hemochromatosis, uh, something I've been interested in for actually quite a long time. You know, and and so I think I think there's going to be some if 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 they do this properly, of course, which they won't. Um, you know, there's no reason why we can't do massive, ge- you know, g- um, genome wide, you know, sort of screening and see who who is who is coming up for different patterns of of adverse events. This is the sort of stuff that NIH should be doing. They they've studied. You know, a lot of the vaccine-injured uh, people, are, you know, in the in the React 19 group, they've put out only a very limited amount of information, and there's a hell of a lot more they could could and should have been doing a long, long time ago. So I think I think whether it's blood groups or any other genetic factors, um, they should be on top of this. And and either they're not doing it at all, or they're doing it, but not, they're not telling anyone about it. And I think that's really a cr- critical problem. Can I just jump in? It's Lynn. Um, there was a paper early on by Ali et al. Um, on ACE2 coding variants in different populations and pot- potential impact on the binding affinity of the virus to your cells. There is some clear-cut patterns, and I- I'd-, I'd suggest maybe reading that. That was from uh, 2020, around, Oct- I want to say August of 2020. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, mean, I think any, any of the obvious receptor binding things that we know about ACE2, there's going to be, um, you, you know, uh, polymorphisms uh, and, and, and it would not su- surprise me at all. There's going to be different propensities to adverse re- events and, and, and things that go in long COVID for that matter as well. Well, and I, you know, I, I, I like the fact that you guys, you guys bring up that it's multifactorial and it really is. I, you know, there's a doc in the audience here, Irene um, Mavrak, Mav. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to butcher your name here, Mavrakakis. Anyway, she brings up a great point. You know, another adverse reaction that happened in all of this is there's a a cross-reactive epitope on the influenza uh, vaccines, especially the quadrivalence that came out uh, in Italy in fall of 2019. And you look at the really adverse uh, death rates in northern Italy, and uh, they were much higher because there's a protein that cross-reacts to the spike protein on one of the quadrivalent variants of influenza. And so, you know, be it blood group type, you know, be it hemochromatosis genes, be it, you know, did you recently get another type of vaccine? There's so many factors. And David's a thousand percent correct. We have the ability to look into gene databases, look at outcomes of all these different groups. That is where the funding should be right now. And we'd have so many answers. And we have these medical technocrats that are hiding the truth and doing improper or, or, Science by omission. They they won't do the science and they won't fund the science. And people will continue to get hurt and people will continue to be lied to until the funding for real science happens over. Yeah, Ryan, you bring up a good point um, about them not even wanting to look at the data. Um, part of my experience with this whole, you know, um, censorship 
I had the state of California in my urgent care for two years while we were collecting data. Um, they were only interested in the uh, comorbidities and the age groups of who was infected um, and basically disregarded the entire treatment data that we had also listed on our spreadsheet. Uh, we turned the spreadsheet in every Friday and our database is now over 20,000 positive COVID patients treated. But yet they don't want the they don't want the information. They don't want the treatment data. They don't want the reinfection rate data. They don't want to see what other co-infections were going on. Uh, we were the first to report the RSV uh, outbreak uh, in summer, which was really really abnormal, showing that immunosuppression that was going on. Uh, the number of shingle cases that were being uh, presented in our clinics as well, showing again immunosuppression. Uh, nobody wanted the data. And it was interesting is in December of 2021, after basically um, I got uh, One American News deplatformed off of YouTube, um, I got suspended from Twitter. The state of California pulled out of my clinic and basically shut me down and censored me for the rest of this time. Well, and that's because you were trying to save lives, Brian, and that went, went against the narrative. I mean, there was only one answer that they wanted people to have, and that's why people got continuously censored on this platform and others, is because you were actually doing something that beat them at their own game. And, you know, God bless you for being a hero, and Dr. Fareed, you guys were just pioneers early on and the amount of lives you saved, not just the 20,000, but hundreds of thousands around the world, because you guys set the example, you know, God bless you, my brother for doing that. Over. Yeah. Yeah. Brian, um, I'll tap in on that. You know, uh, one of the things that you did was that study, which showed basically you were doing 98% better than the surrounding County. That was all around you. In a sense, you were the one, your patients were actually doing extremely well, I think, and 98% better than, I think, in the same county, if that's what I remember from the paper. So what do you attribute, you know, some of that test to? The fact that you have magic in your hands or the fact that you just practice good medicine? I mean, explain what happened there. Why were you successful? Why was the surrounding county and the surrounding areas not so successful? Well, I mean, it goes back to basic, you know, practice of medicine. Number one is we treated early. Uh, we treated the symptoms uh, we did chest x-rays. We saw inflammation. We treated inflammation. Uh, we saw pneumonia. We treated pneumonia. We saw blood clots, so we prevented blood clotting for future patients. Uh, we saw, um, you know, oxygen levels going down, so we gave uh, supplemental oxygen and had people take home oxygen tanks. Um, we didn't sit around and say, oh, um, there's no outpatient treatment. You have to wait and go home for seven to ten days. And if you're not feeling any better at that point, go go to the ER, get intubated, get put on, uh, you know, morphine and Ativan and, and basically expire. Um, we didn't take that as acceptable practice in our clinic. And because we did not uh, accept that we and treated, we had the high success rate that we did. And Dr. Tyson, it's sort of astounding to hear that you know, someone basically doing something, you know, essentially following the procedure, upholding the Hippocratic Oath uh, would be, you know, basically attacked for doing so. And there were these other preposterous protocols in place. What do you, what do you account? How do you account for this actually happening? And this is this speaks to another question that was actually asked by one of the viewers. Well, I think it, it goes back to 
what was what's really driving this this whole pandemic um and it was the the vaccine when you look at it to get an emergency use authorization uh, you have to have no other alternative treatment available and i was the one who broke that story in the news um because we were looking at all of the different um, emergency use authorization tests. We were looking at who can get qualified for tests. We were working with the lab who was trying to get a test uh, to market. And so we were looking at all of these different avenues under the emergency use authorization. And we found that it's stated very clearly in order to get emergency use authorization, there could be no other alternative. Well, the alternative to the vaccine would then be early outpatient treatment with repurposed drugs. We knew hydroxychloroquine worked. We knew that dexamethasone would work with inflammation. We were seeing inflammation on chest x-rays, just like we were seeing with H1N1 uh, back in the early 2000s. We knew um, how to treat it, and we knew that we could, we could prevent a lot of these uh, problems by using early repurposed drugs uh, and treating uh, patients, uh, you know, before they develop that cytokine storm. Uh, Brian, Brian, uh, just a question, because I think um, I, I want to kind of, in a sense, put this in the right context. So drugs for prevention of, of clotting are not repurposed, right? They're just drugs we use for prevention of clotting. So that's on label, right? That's correct. And then drugs we use for inflammation, pretty much we use for inflammation and other diseases on label. That's correct. So the only time, in a sense, and then respiratory uh, drugs that we use for respiratory compromise, again, on label. That's correct. So the only part of the equation where we were off label was attacking the virus. So did you go willy nilly and just pick things out of out of out of a, out of a cart, or did you actually look in the literature and find things that looked like they worked in tissue culture and related diseases? And and is that what you chose to do, or? Or did you just do willy nilly out of the car? No, we we, so we, obvious, looked in, but... we did what what good doctors do, which is you start doing a database research. You know what other what other times have we seen coronavirus? When did we see you know the first SARS uh, outbreak? When did we see MERS uh, come out? You know what were some of the the drugs that they were looking at? And hydroxychloroquine was at the top of that list. That article came out in 2005. Uh, you know that showed chloroquine is a potent inhibitor of the SARS coronavirus and its spread. That's how we found that out, you know, and we know that uh, zinc uh, inhibits RNA polymerase. So we knew that we needed to use zinc, um, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin later uh, was found to be a zinc ionophore. So that, that combination worked real well. Uh, we also know that Zithromax has potent antiviral and antibacterial properties for atypical pneumonia. So when you look at a chest x-ray and you see atypical pneumonia, Zithromax was one of those drugs that we would go to. And so we started using it. And next, and next thing you know, patients started getting better. Um, one of the asthma medications that we see a lot and we use a lot is budesonide, right? And uh, solumedrol, uh, dexamethasone. So when patients were acting like asthma, I can't breathe, I'm having a hard time, I'm getting chest pressure, uh, chest tightness, and patients were acting like asthma, oxygen saturations were going down. We started using asthma medications to help them get better. And guess what? They got better. Um, you know, so 
when I went on KUSI News in San Diego and I broke that and said, hey, this is what's going on, guys. We have treatment. We can we can we can uh, beat this. I was shut down like I was some quack doctor out of, you know, Dr. Seuss uh, book and, and people, you know, basically tried to discredit everything that we were doing. It, it, it was insanity to me. Who was coordinating these attacks upon you? Um, it was it was weird. It was, um, you know, the social media companies. It was they were putting labels. Facebook shut me down. Uh, YouTube shut anything down that I did uh, interview wise. Um, and, you know, I tried posting on Twitter. I tried posting, you know, asking questions. I'd get banned. I'd get shut down. I'd be told to, to delete my tweet or delete my uh, Facebook post. Um, and it was these so-called, quote, fact checkers. Uh, but nobody knew who these fact checkers were. Yeah, I kind of think about it. Remember how Breitbart supported us early on when you and I went, were in Washington, D.C. And, and now, basically, it's come down to almost no support um, except for Epoch Times. I mean, we basically have, you know, one one source of true news. Um, and of course, we've had some one American news. We've had some others. You've, you've done pretty well out there uh, with Dan Ball. Um, but overall, um, it's been um, 20,000 patients treated. Um, and just for the audiences, uh, how many how many have died um, that you treated before seven uh, that you were able to get before seven days? Nobody died before seven days. Uh, we had four deaths who came to us after seven days to get on the same day that they saw us, didn't get those, um, and we had six hospitalizations. Hey, let's bring it up to date because uh, you have so much info. Um, what are we seeing right now? The RSV, the uh, rhinovirus, um, uh, what, what, what are we seeing? Because you, you're, you're basically gathering data every day. Yeah, so right now the biggest one is influenza A. Um, we actually had our first case of influenza B today. Um, RSV in kids seems to be running pretty rampant still. Um, human metanumovirus, we're seeing some scattered cases on. And rhinovirus seems to be uh, coming down. We saw a lot of that about uh, two months ago into last month. Um, so right now it seems to be influenza uh, seems to be the main uh, culprit. Um, and then the, the new variants are coming out from coronavirus, which we're seeing an uptick in, in those cases as well. So this is an important question. Um, why, why is why are these other viruses popping up? But I'd love to get either you know David or Lynn or 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 Ryan talk about why why are we seeing um, these other viruses come back? Why what happened with um, flu last year? Why did flu? Why was it not in big numbers? Um, um, is this just uh, poor reporting, or was there some other secret thing happening? I like to call it the secret social lives of viruses. Um, viruses compete just like in uh, evolutionary of uh, all of nature. There's always competition. So if you look historically at the data from Europe and, and the Western world uh, over the last 50 years, you'll see a strong cold season, maybe a strong flu season or two, then a strong two cold seasons and back and forth and back and forth. So viruses will actually produce a little language of peptides and they'll they'll send a little message and they'll stick it to the off gene and backbench other viruses. So when people say, oh, gosh, you know, they're covering it up. It was it was influenza being hidden as COVID. No, actually, influenza was quietly there all along, but at a lower rate. And this is just how um, 
how evolution works. There's always competition and survival of the fittest. And so why are we seeing less COVID now for the most part? And like, like Dr. Tyson said, you know, we're seeing more uh, influenza, more RSV, other viruses. It's because um, COVID is weaker now. And now the, the off genes from those other viruses are uh, able to outcompete COVID in, in many settings. Uh, why are we seeing those other viruses wake up? Well, a lot of people got the shots and are immune suppressed. And we're seeing, you know, like we mentioned earlier with some of the tolerance, chronic immune suppression, not just in antibodies, but also T cell lines. So it, it's allowed a lot of viruses to wake up. What I'm kind of afraid of right now is we kind of have a population that's uh, a walking Petri dish of so many viruses that we normally don't see that are reactivated because of chronic immune suppression population wise over yeah yeah so so um, is it true that is it true that the the flu arrived about a month or two earlier this season is that is that is that a fair statement yeah I, I, in, in some of the data sets it, it looks that way absolutely and and this off-season brewing of uh multiple different viruses again when you, especially mRNA injections, the breadth of immune suppression that they cause, um, your broad natural immune response, not, not your specific to one virus or another, or one infection or another, but your, your broad array of immunity. And Dr. Vandenbosch is brilliant on this topic. And I know he's sometimes a little more complex to read and understand, but he's been screaming from the rooftops for over a year Folks, you know, we're suppressing our broad natural immunity with a uh, really poorly thought out vaccine program in the middle of a pandemic. So because of that suppression of your breadth and, and in favor of a narrowed immune response, now we've woken up a lot of sleeping dragons over. So Let's I'm going to jump in here. Uh, I want to just one thing, to Jan, because Ryan mentioned something. Sorry to interrupt. Um, Ryan, you just talked about vaccinating in the middle of a pandemic. Um, we keep hearing Hotez calling madly for more vaccination. Um, what are the chances of vaccinating our way out of this thing? Uh, zero. And and maybe Hotez could get two or three more and have a stroke and then he can't say anything. I don't know. But it drives me nuts that you have liars like this pretending to be scientists, pushing something that has zero chance of benefit. We know this, you know, it doesn't prevent acquisition, transmission, disease, or death. It's a leaky vaccine. It's causing autoimmune problems left and right. Why he would, other than financial interests or self-interest or grant interest, continue to push something that has more than obviously failed is really tragic and disgusting. But at the same time, it has no chance Vaccinating in the middle of a widespreading illness has no chance of ever succeeding, especially against a coronavirus. And this is a disaster. This is an immunologic, this is an evolutionary and a biologic disaster. The shots need to go away like a year and a half ago. They need to go away, period. So don't get another one, period. But to have medical bureaucrats continuing to force this mindset to cause harm to humanity is mind-boggling. I'll just okay, leave it so at that. Just, try to just, keep just, my work. Just for the quick words. science, David, maybe, Lynn, Over. Ryan. So the immune neutralizing, the neutralizing antibodies, are they improving as we go through this rapid vaccination where there are fourth or fifth vaccine? Is that, is that, what's the, what are the I, major issues that make that go for an it, impossibility? Lynn. Go for it, 
Go for it, Lynn. There, there are several papers and, and many, many observations from all of us that with each and every booster, with each and every shot, the ability to produce an antibodies declines. So those who say, well, it's okay in the elderly, they're wrong. It's, it's okay in the children, they're wrong. I do not see a need in any demographic for this vaccine. It impairs your ability to produce this antibody. It, it, it impairs your ability for secretory immunity as well. It, it impairs your overall immune system as well as toll-like receptors activating latent viruses, the, the herpes, the, the shingles, the Epstein-Barr, all of these activating and spreading again. Um, I don't see it appropriate in any case for this. Not a single one. Yeah, they're all they're all risk zero benefit, Lynn. They're all risk zero benefit, and and it's actually technically criminal at this point because it's it's an agent, a, a bad therapy at best, that's causing more harm than good. So why can these? I, I, I don't know. To me, it's just criminal activity to continue this program. So I just want to jump in. Um, we do have one doctor that's on that, that hasn't had a chance to speak yet. And it's actually very relevant to the, the, the discussion point right now, um, because I'm just going to read out the, the, the tweet that she was actually locked out of her account for. That's Dr. Kat Lindley. She, she wrote, uh, listen to Paul Alexander, PhD, smallpox vaccine to prevent monkeypox could cause global smallpox vaccinia epidemic. I warn, do not be that stupid to understand you have damaged the immune systems of M billions with COVID vaccines, potentially. Uh, Dr. Lindley, if you could uh, jump in. Yes, I was actually just going to bring up a point Um what they're all trying to say from the clinical standpoint, the reasons these vaccines, we are uh, definitely encouraging people not to continue getting boosters and things like that is stuff that even Brian mentioned. We are seeing prominent uh, cases of flu. Uh, strep is very virulent this year. RSV in older adults. Um, and these type of things should not be happening. The reason they're happening is because the immune systems are down. And it's very important for people who have taken the vaccines to now do things to try to actually improve their immune system. And, you know, we all talk about vitamin supplements. Vitamin D is extremely important. Uh, the stress reduction and things like that. Um, it just never makes sense. You know, one of the things I remember from early on that Peter McCullough said, he said in one of our early talks, he said, if you have to get more than one booster in the same year, the vaccine is failing. And now we are up to five, six, seven boosters, you know, depends which country you look at. And uh, it's time to, for people to really go and uh, remember that our, our immune system, our bodies knows exactly what to do. And that's why we, we all talked about early on about natural immunity and Paul Alexander has published all sorts of uh, studies on brownstone uh, explaining why natural immunity is important. And it's kind of ironic that his uh, Substack deplatformed me from uh, Twitter six, seven months ago. 
you know, really while we're while we're here, um, I'm just going to throw in another audience question because there's a ton of people that really want to get something. And this one's actually quite interesting. And this is a, a, a con- kind of a contentious issue. I'm very curious of your opinions on it. So the question is, um, what is the current information we have regarding mRNA transfer from vaxxed individuals to unvaxxed? Well, I, I'll start off by saying uh, shedding is real. Um, what happens when you produce a messenger RNA inside of a cell is some of the messenger RNA um, ends up on the outside of the cell wall. But there's because this thing is producing um, spike protein for two months or more in many individuals, it's the, the, the outside wall fills up with spike. And after that, the, these packages of what's called exosomes, spike protein with a lipid cover, end up getting um, spit out of the cell into the extracellular space. And they go to many places. They're able to travel into every secretion across the placenta, in the breast milk. Um, they, can, they can get into the lungs. They can pretty much travel anywhere because they have a lipophilic component to them. And, and so that's called shedding. Um, this is well known in this type of, um, in this type of platform, a messenger RNA lipid nanoparticle producing that much protein over a long period of time is going to do that. So um, Journal of Immunology, they found... Um, this up to four months later. I forget the name of the study. Ryan probably remembers the, the name. Doctor Doctor Bonsall was the author on that one. Yeah. So this is so it's not a question of it's just a question of how much is happening. It's not a question of if it's happening. It's just how much of this is happening. So that's the question that we don't have the answer to. That's the question that should be asked. That's part of what's called pharmacokinetics, um, where you def- you define distribution, um, you define actually what is happening with something you're producing. This is not done on this um, uh, on this uh, whole platform, and now they're going to use this ubiquitous platform of the messenger RNA lipid nanoparticle. And as Kat just said, the lipid nanoparticle itself is actually decreasing the immune system function. It, it affects um, uh, cellular immune response and probably overall depression of about 20%. So we're seeing that over and over um, in the studies. What else are we seeing? 40% more deaths in 2021. I wonder why that happened. So we're seeing, um, as people are looking at this, antibody-dependent cytotoxicity, which means after you get your second, third, fourth shot, you're basically activating and, and basically causing like an immune refocusing and printing on not only your, your antibody responses, and the antibody responses become less efficient with time, as we were talking about earlier, They're not, they become non-neutralizing, but you also activate your cytotoxic T cells, your complement cascade, antigen-presenting cells, um, natural killer cells, the immune system, um, in a sense, ramps itself up to try to uh, basically fight this one warrior that's got to fight the spike protein. And so, in a sense, then you become less efficient, um, not only at fighting the spike protein because it keeps mutating, um, but also at fighting cancer cells and other viruses. And then you have to add on the fact that the spike itself ends up going inside of nuclei and actually disturbs DNA damage repair, P53 and BRCA. So you have that happening. And then you also have uh, difficulty with immune viral surveillance because the spike protein is also interfering with toll-like receptors 4, 7, and 8. So you have basically the ultimate biologic weapon um, and the immune system now, as you see with the latest paper in the IgG4, which is basically not a response we have when we're trying to neutralize something. It's, a, it's a basically IgG4 is basically a non-neutralizing antibody. And I usually tell people when you have that, what you have is um, like sticking a key inside of an ignition now you can't put the right key in. It's blocking, in a sense, the right thing from happening. 
So it's it's worse than it sounds. It's not just that you made a non-neutralizing antibody. You basically made a Trojan horse. So there's lots of reasons why this is all happening. As Ryan talked about, the secret social life of viruses, that's also probably made, um, in a sense, um, you know, RSV and and influenza have made, in a sense, upgrades to themselves to actually be able to use us as a host over and above what COVID was doing. And that's a really neat, it's called the viral arbitrium. It's a great thing that we can talk about at some point. But but overall, we're seeing immune compromise in a big way. And you're going to see that's part of the reason why um, we're seeing all the problems we're seeing. And I forgot to mention uh, one of the biggest things is that the spike produces um, the CD147, which binds up red blood cells and platelets which is the reason why we're seeing all these vascular events. So um, at the end of the day, it's not only immune compromise, but it's also the fact that we have a, a massive amount of vascular issues on top of it. It's a horrible bioweapon. Dr. Ben, you, were, you want to say something, but I also, I remember you said something earlier, which I wanted to get you to clarify, which was just that the, the spike is kind of unusual or interesting in that it attacks every organ system. I believe that's what you said, but I guess you want to, comment on what Dr. Ursa was saying anyway? Um, I'll do both. Um, I meant it's a multi-system pathogen. It it can attack your endothelium. It can attack your organs, your spleen, your reproductive organs. It can pass the the blood-brain barrier, and it could cause problems in your brain, in your neurological system. As Dr. Ursa said, your bone marrow, your blood, your lymphatics, it turns off cancer surveillance. So you're free. that's where you're getting these turbo cancers, as they're calling, coining the uh, term. Um, all of these things are accurate, and, and it's unusual to find something in nature that does that. Why? Because the virus only has one objective, and that is to replicate and make more viruses, period. That's its only goal. Its goal is not to go out and kill its host, because it'll kill itself. So when people realize that that is the goal of a natural virus, so it can persist, and this is attacking all of these different systems, something's not natural about it. Even just from a lay person's perspective, many lay people have come to me and said, you know what, something is wrong about all this, it doesn't make sense, and, and they needed to trust their gut, because they were right. Um, and And expanding on what the question from the audience was in 2021 uh, I wrote uh, for America's Frontline Doctors a blog and I was treating um, a a girl a young girl at West Point who was in full isolation with her three roommates because they weren't allowed out and she three of her roommates got vaccinated and she did not And she refused. She didn't want to. She wanted to hold out as long as she could. And when they came back to her room, because they were only allowed to go get their shot and then come back because they were truly in isolation. um, She not only got a horrendous bout of COVID, but that was after she got the most painful shingles she ever had. And two other issues. Then one of the third girls got myocarditis. And for someone who was not sick, who was just rooming and isolated with three other vaccinated troops, roommates, to get all of these things that we are seeing now from the vaccine. I wrote about who spiked the shot was my was my title. And it was about my hypothesis of vaccine shedding. That was the my second um, ban. Dr. 
Yeah, and so Lynn, it's not a hypothesis, right? I mean, it's a fact. I mean, the data's there. Oh, the fact is, it is a fact, and the data is there, and we we know it to be. At the time when I I made it, it was at the end of 2020, and the article was written in January 2021, and I said it was anecdotal. However, this doesn't happen in a closed system, much like the cruise ships were were a nice isolated system that we can study this on, right? And we're getting all of these vaccinated only cruises with massive COVID outbreaks. Well, what gives? And- Lynn, you, you brought something up to me about this early on when we were looking at the protocols. Like you said to me that they actually knew it in the protocols. Can you tell about, can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, they knew it because they made the endpoint uh, symptom severity instead of transmission. And in the actual protocol, the handling directions were such that if you're going to be around a pregnant person, they had to be on double, two different types of, of, of uh, contraceptives. Contra- sorry, the contraceptives. And if they were handling it, they had to wash or wear gloves. If they touched the vial, or if they were recently vaccinated to sequester from other people, especially if there's going to be a pregnant person. And with all of these warnings in the protocol, the the first thing I thought of is how are they blindly recommending every pregnant woman to get this shot when even the handling directions uh, say to avoid women of childbearing years or, or anyone pregnant? They had to have known that it would shed this way. They had to have known that there was transfer, that it could transfect in this way, because it's in black and white in the Pfizer protocol. I guess the other question is, it might not be obvious to the listeners when it comes to the shedding question. I mean, is that just as simple? Is it as simple as now there's virus out in the environment and that's going into the you know, your nasal passage and that can accumulate and then cause the disease. It's just that simple. No, it's, no, this is a, this is different. one of the proteins. It's, it's the fact that you're being programmed, your cells are being programmed to become spike factories. It's going to produce massive amounts of spike. It's going, that spike has the propensity and ability to bind to exosomes coming out of pulling waste out of your cells, out of your space. And those exosomes are exhaled. Those exosomes can come through, the messenger RNA itself can come through your pores, your sweat, and urine, and feces, and any close proximity or close domicile. So this can transfer to someone else, either through their respiratory system or their skin, close contact, et cetera. To kind of go further on that, the spike is 95% of the disease. For the most part, the rest of the other 28 proteins don't really cause as much as these envelope causes some some issues but yeah careful i got banned for saying that the spike is the pathogen uh so you know that's basically that's where all the weaponry is that's the cd-147 that's the gp-120 that's the nrp-1 that's the ace-2 the tmprss-2 all the all the direct effects on the nucleus on on things we talked about total like receptors four seven and eight um, also the um, P53 and BRCA, all those things, weaponry is all on the spike. So, 
in a sense, when you get a low to spike, you're getting spike protein syndrome, which is basically COVID-19, causes the inflammatory response. So, yeah, the answer to your question is um, when you make more, uh, when you get the, the get the vaccine, then you do when you get the virus, because the virus replication competency is only basically five to seven days. The replication competency of, of this spike protein is two months or more. So I see we have uh, Justin Hart has joined the chat here. Um, uh, author of Gone Viral, talking a lot about uh, different aspects of the COVID pandemic, the virus, and so forth. And I know, uh, you know, Doctor Urso, you you had some a question for him. Good evening, all. Thanks for having me on. Great to be with you, folks. I got to meet a lot of you recently in Miami at some of the conferences, and uh, glad to just uh, join for a brief conversation here. Great to hear your voice, Justin. Yeah. Uh,